How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to The Way of the Wolf. Our guest today was actually introduced to me by Robert Party, so you know this is going to be a great conversation. He spent 30 years, or almost 30 years, at IBM and then realized... Uh, the burnout just wasn't really for him and actually transitioned into a mindfulness-based coaching program. And now he helps other executives and other people find their path. So, Steve Ware, welcome to The Way of the Wolf. Thank you, Sean. Real pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. All right. I know I, I gave a, a brief summary of you working at IBM for almost three decades. Can you share a little bit about yourself? I want to hear about your journey at IBM, but then also tell the listeners and viewers just a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I I kind of have found myself describing myself these days, Sean, as the world's least likely mindfulness teacher. And I kind of say that tongue in cheek, but it's kind of serious because I never really set out to do this, right? I never set out, I never sat down one day and thought, I want to change as many people's lives as I can by teaching them something that I've just found to be so helpful, so mainstream, so normal. Um, it all just kind of happened to me in some ways. But yeah, the start of the story was me leaving um, school as a kid and joining IBM straight from higher education here, A-levels. So when I was 18, I joined IBM. So I was 1992. I joined them and they sponsored me. IBM sponsored me to do my degree with them. So I stayed there for three years, did my degree. And then 28 years later, I was, I, I was kind of still there. But um, what did your career path and progression look like while you're at IBM? So I always did technical roles. I was always and looking back, this is interesting because I always enjoyed solving problems. Probably the best part of my job, even early on, was solving problems for people. Was seeing the look on their face when I managed to fix what they were struggling with. And they were like, oh, cool, it's fixed now. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, technical roles, solving IT problems, building IT solutions, supporting them, managing them, um, sort of consultancy, that kind of stuff. So deep, fairly deeply technical stuff because that's my, what my degree was in. Okay. I know a lot of technology professionals. The majority of my career has been in technology. You don't strike me as a typical technology professional. The conversations that we've had already, you're very warm and welcoming. And I guess that makes sense given the nature of what you do today. Were you always like this or were you kind of the typical IT nerd? I can say that because I am one that <laughs> sat in the back office and was a keyboard warrior and, yeah. and did their own thing. No, I was not your typical nerd, and I, and I remember quite. I remember thinking quite early on at IBM, I'd, I'd go down. IBM still has actually a laboratory just along from me in the UK, down in Winchester, and I remember going there some days. That's where the deep techies are. That's where the real kind of deeply, yeah, just deeply technical people do their thing, I guess. And I remember going there a few times, and just watching these guys and girls do their thing, and thinking, I'm in the wrong game here because they're talking a different language, they're living a different life, they're excited about different things, they were building their own PCs at home. I never bought a PC. The first PC I bought was, was two years ago when I when I, when I left IBM. I never ever owned one because I, I was on one all day for work, right? So the last thing I wanted was to get on one in the evening and I wasn't interested in the latest graphics cards and building all these great things that people do. So um, 
it's ironic that I found myself doing almost 30 years in IT, given I'm, I mean, I'm good at it. I guess I was good at it, which got me by, um, but it wasn't my passion. I, it took me a long time to figure out my passion. And what is your passion? Helping people, I think. It's the shortest answer to that. Properly helping people. What have you found to be the most effective way for you to help people? By showing them, not by telling them what they need to do, but by embodying it and showing them and being alongside them. And that may sound a little cryptic. It'll probably come out. The answer will probably come out more deeply as we talk. Um, but as you know, I was very anti-mindfulness before I tried mindfulness, right? Somebody told me to try. I was burning out at IBM. This is 10 years ago now. So I'd been there 20 years. <clears throat> I was burning out IBM and I needed something. I was desperate for some way, Sean, to just feel peaceful again, to just sleep better, to just feel less anxious, to just feel like I didn't have the weight of the world on me all day, every day. And someone said, why don't you try mindfulness, Steve? It's meant to be amazing. And I, I think I literally swore at them. I told them where they could put their books and their apps and their phones and everything else related to mindfulness, right? I'm this supposedly macho guy in a pretty macho world working for one of the biggest IT companies in the, in the, on the planet who, who demanded a lot. And the idea of me sitting around doing nothing, which is what I thought meditation was, was just another thing I didn't have time for. And it seemed like a giant waste of time anyway. So I, I had huge reservations about it. I'm, I can remember thinking, I can remember it made me, it triggered me that somebody said I should try it because I thought it's for weak people, it's for wimps, it's not for me, it's not for people that get on with their life, it's not for people that have client needs and, you know, meet deadlines. And so, yeah, it took, it took a little while for me to even dip my toe in and, and, and I did that in secret, really. I kind of hid it from everybody and just one day I thought, do you know what, Steve, you know, you have these conversations in your own head. I kind of had a conversation that said, maybe you don't know everything. Maybe, maybe your closed, opinionated, narrow-minded Western brain doesn't know absolutely everything. And maybe maybe this has been around for two and a half thousand years for a reason. Maybe the science is compelling for a reason. Maybe all these evidence-based programs exist for a reason. It seems so obvious saying it now. So I started to practice, but in secret. And I told my wife, and that's about it. Didn't tell anybody at work. Didn't tell my extended family. Certainly didn't tell my friends. Certainly didn't walk through the bars of Portsmouth where I live and you know say who fancy starting a meditation group so I kind of hid it I was embarrassed about it to start with how old were you when you had that realization event and that conversation with yourself so that was about 10 years ago and I'm 48 now so it was late 30s okay I found a lot of people that we have conversations with on the show in their mid to late thirties, they have this epiphany phase where they realize yeah. everything that they've been doing while it's gotten them to a place in their life or career, they've been doing it wrong yeah. or maybe, maybe not so much wrong as much as realizing the need to get to that next level in your life is going to require you to change. Yeah. And, and what, what brings about that for everybody? I mean, there's probably one common factor that brings that about. I know what it was for me. What was it for you? Suffering. Yeah. Right? You get yeah. to that point where you think something's got to change. I don't want to, 
because in my 20s, I was kind of sailing through life. I graduated with a first-class degree, and I had this great job at IBM, and then I bought a nice BMW convertible car, and, you know, everything's good. I mean, I, and but then life deals you some difficult cards, and then, then you stop sleeping so well, and then you do feel more anxious, and then you realize that you're not immortal, and then... And it's the, so certainly the suffering that led me to this, 100%. Without the suffering, we wouldn't be talking. Yeah. I guess it's these phases of our lives. And while every single human on the planet has different experiences throughout the, their lives, we're all still human. And we go through a similar journey. We're born. We experience life. We, we go to school. We go to college. We get a career have children and then things start to shift and change and then you get old and and die and that's the part of life that we all experience at some point and so while we all have unique and individual experiences i guess we're also all very the same in in that aspect in that regard Absolutely. so I'm, i've got to know when you started meditating and practicing mindfulness on your own you said you kind of kept it to yourself and secretive yeah at what point did you go back to that person that initially suggested it to you and say yeah you were right <laughs> well interestingly they they actually noticed it in me okay they noticed how you were interacting with other people around you yeah so this is and this is this is kind of funny because i thought i was hiding it right i thought it was something that was separate from from what i took into work i thought i had this kind of secret formula that seemed to be working for me that was helping me sleep helping me with my anxiety levels helping me with my never-ending inbox and but i thought i kind of separated the two mm -hmm. so that was the first real big realization for me that you know work and personal you can't separate the two ever truly really and people notice these things and so probably the four words that changed my life were a conversation i had at ibm and i've been meditating for a little while only 10 minutes a day right i wasn't doing major things um but it was enough for people to notice and the four words that changed my life were when people said what are you doing and i told them and they said can you teach us can you teach us because we need this and we don't know how like we, what is what is meditation? What is mindfulness? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Like, what do you do? Do you read a book? Do you get an app? Do you find a course? Do you show us? Like, we want to, you seem a little bit further down this path than we are, so can you show us? And I had to say no at that point because I wasn't trained to teach. I knew enough about mindfulness to know there's a vast depth to this that you don't treat it lightly, that it's incredibly powerful. And if you're going to teach other people this, that you really, you know, need to embody it yourself, you need to practice it yourself, you need to <clears throat> experience it yourself, because you can't teach from a place of an experience. This isn't just telling people facts or kind of heavy conceptual learning. This is a very experiential thing. So when they first asked me that, I, I kind of had to press pause and say no, because... I didn't feel I was qualified to do it, and I felt it was a thing I would have to take seriously if I did it. But going back to the opening of this conversation, I still didn't think then, wouldn't it be great to be a mindfulness teacher? I, th I wanted to help my friends, my colleagues. I could see how much it would help me, and I wanted to give them that. I, was, I remember thinking, what greater gift could I give them? Honestly, what greater gift could I give them? Nothing, probably. So 
A little while went past, but this was another turning point in my life. I remember coming home from work one day and opening my laptop and typing in where's the best place to learn how to teach mindfulness in business in England. And I was thinking, I'll go anywhere. I don't care where it is, I wanna learn from the best. And what came up in that search was the University of Oxford, which has a mindfulness foundation there. And it's not too far from me, it's kind of two and a half hours. It's, I remember closing the laptop lid and saying, okay, Oxford it is, let's do it, let's go. Um, and I would take days off work, I would travel up and down to Oxford and I would sit in these incredible wood paneled auditoriums, you know, and, and they're incredibly austere places, places that are former prime ministers have been to, whether that's a compliment or not, I don't know at the moment. Um, but you know, they're very esteemed places. Everybody's heard of the University of Oxford and Cambridge in England. So I actually went there with a lot of um, inferiority and I had a big imposter syndrome when I was there, Sean. I'd, I'd turn up and I'd kind of want to hide a little bit because I'd think I'm in a room with some of the most impressive mindfulness teachers in the world and they're all published authors and they've all run incredible experiments and you know created incredible courses and who am i to be sitting here how did you work through that imposter syndrome i named it i told people i was honest actually which is tough to do it's tough to do as a as a that's something i've got a bit better at as i've got older is getting past that macho thing that says Steve, you think you're a tough guy. You think tough guys have it all together, all time, you know, all day, all long. And you mustn't ever show any weakness, any vulnerability. You mustn't ever admit to being. But I've learned that's not the greatest strategy. And so when I was there, I'd say to them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not fit to lace anybody's shoes here, but I'm really keen to learn. And they were really kind and they're nice people. They wanted to help me, and and my. My question was, I was trying to do something that was pretty much in its infancy then, which was take something, this something called mindfulness that had been proven beyond doubt clinically. So by this time, our National Health Service in England was already prescribing it for people with repeated episodes of depression. <clears throat> and they were getting amazing results, incredible results. You can look all this science up, you know, as good or better than medication. It's like really phenomenal stuff Oxford do. They were also strong academically. They've offered it to the students at Oxford University for a long time. But what they, um, what wasn't so mature back then was mindfulness in business, right? Do people in huge companies like IBM want to learn this? Can you make it so palatable? Can you make it so normal? Can you make it so secular and mainstream? Do people do it? And what are the results going to be? And I didn't know any of the answer to that question, but that's what I set out to experiment with and that's why i went to oxford and why i bought an eight-week program back into ibm and trialed it can you talk me through a little bit about or elaborate on something you said earlier as we were recording and that is mindfulness versus meditation can you talk through that and then maybe elaborate a little bit more on what mindfulness means to you yeah so whenever i'm asked this I answer the question slightly indirectly. And the reason I do that is because when I was learning this stuff, I've been to a ton of presentations on mindfulness and meditation over the years, and a lot of people will put the first slide up and say, mindfulness is da 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 da, -da right at the end of that sentence. And most people's da da da, -da, -da is probably from a guy, John Kabat-Zinn, who's in the US, 
um, you know, one of the really founding fathers of mainstream mindfulness. Brilliant man, brilliant programs. But his definition, um, and I've not memorized it, but it's something you know about paying attention deliberately, non-judgmentally. <clears throat> and they're great words, and they do encapsulate what mindfulness is, but, but for people that haven't experienced mindfulness, at least I found it was just a very clever sentence that didn't I couldn't really wrap my head around. Right, so let me ask, let me let me almost flip this around. And for anybody listening to this, let's just do a little fun experiment right now. So I want you to just bring to mind one moment in your life. Could have been this morning, it could have been five, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whenever, when you're a kid. But just bring to mind one moment in your life where you felt either deeply peaceful, so you kind of were very still. Don't want to put too many ideas in people's heads because I want them to think of their own example. Maybe you're lying on a beach somewhere or you just sat in nature somewhere. You know that sense you have where just for two seconds it's just kind of, oh, life's good. If, if you can make a sound to describe it, it just be kind of that, ah, oh, life's good. Wow, just for two seconds. The way the world lifts from your shoulders, beautiful. So either that or maybe you felt that same kind of underlying stillness despite being incredibly active so maybe if sports people would refer to it as being in the flow maybe you were practicing a sport competing in a sport maybe you're climbing a mountain racing a car or a bike skiing something incredibly active so it was a very um, intensely alive activity but you also felt underneath it you also felt pretty still right there's a kind of depth of peace that goes with that even though physically you're active or maybe Maybe you really notice something beautiful in nature. As I look out this window here now, it's quite a sunny day in the UK. There's some clouds, the sun's shining, the sky's pretty still, it's pretty nice. So maybe maybe what bring, if I say to you, bring to mind a moment in your life where you felt deeply peaceful, maybe you're looking at nature. Maybe you're in awe at something incredibly beautiful, a sunset on holiday or whatever, or an animal. Maybe you're watching your dog, sleeping, whatever. And when you've got that, or when you've got all those moments, maybe you can think of four, five, six examples, the question I ask people is if you zoom right in really closely, and you've got to be very careful about this, you zoom all the way in to that moment where you felt that intense peace, where you felt that you're intensely alive, but you felt deeply peaceful at the same time. You're in total awe of that beauty just for one second. And the question I ask everybody is during the piece, not before it, not immediately after it, during that moment of feeling beautifully peaceful, intensely alive, noticing the beauty in something, how much thinking were you doing? And everybody says, none. Unless, and maybe, maybe I should talk about it, Some, not everybody says none, most people say none. Some people say, it's not none for me, Steve, because I was thinking um, about a beautiful sunset on holiday and I saw it and I was thinking because I was thinking how incredible that sunset is. And I took my phone out and I put it on Instagram and I should have da 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 da, right? But I'd say to even those people, your mind is probably so incredibly busy, which is the norm these days, that that sliver of peace that you had and the, and the commentary about it that your mind came in and interpreted the space was so small that you didn't notice it. But I would even suggest to those people that that tiny space is there. So, and, and most people do say, yeah, if I think about it, the most beautiful moments in my life coincide with my mind being still, with my mind stopping thinking. This, this, 
incredible thing. And I would describe that as a moment of mindfulness in your life. So everybody understands what that is, right? You were probably, your attention was probably way more in your senses than, than normal. The amount of thinking you were doing was vastly reduced. So you basically came into the present moment. This is where we can tie it back into anybody's definition about being present, not judging what you're seeing, having your full attention, your full awareness in your senses and seeing what that is. And so that would be my definition of mindfulness. And you can do that any place, any time, right? And before we close today, I'm going to give people some examples, some real practical, useful tips of inviting mindfulness into your day, no matter how busy you are. And I've worked with some of the busiest people in companies, no matter how busy you are, because the things I'm going to give you to practice require no time at all. Why? Because they're not going to be about doing different things. They're going to be about doing things differently. And that's a big, that's a big shakeup. I'm, as you were talking through that, I was envisioning there's a few moments in my life over the years that I started flashing through. And one of them was a trip to Banff up in Canada years ago, went by myself, went hiking, and I found a spot. There was like a little rock wall and I just laid there and looked up at the beautiful blue sky and there was this the turquoise river that was next to me and it was just such a peaceful and serene moment and i came back from that trip feeling more refreshed than i had in in years and then i was thinking okay how many other moments have i had and it's not a not I have a tendency to be a chronic overthinker and my mind will not shut down. It, it makes it difficult for me to sleep at night. I just like, I cannot turn my brain off. And so I'm very much looking forward to those tips here at the end of the show. I am curious. This is not something that is really promoted all that much in the U.S. When you, you mentioned how in the U.K. it's something that's prescribed and people suggest it. And I would assume, based on what you said, that, that doctors are big on this as well. That's not so much the case here in the U.S. And there's obviously probably reasons for that. But how do we start raising awareness of mindfulness in the States and getting people to start looking towards natural options to help with sleep and help with anxiety and, and all of those things. I mean, the U S has got some great teachers, <clears throat> some phenomenal teachers. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn, who I mentioned already, you know, this guy revolutionized parts of healthcare, I think in the U S you know, he's in Boston, Massachusetts. He's there in the early eighties. You think how far we're going back the early eighties. When you mention mindfulness in a healthcare setting in America in the early 80s, everybody's like, get this crazy guy out of here. What's he talking about? But he, if you look up John's work, he, he created an eight-week program which was, which was pioneering. And the people that came on his program were the people that the doctors had done everything for. They'd had every tablet they could give them, they'd had every, every painkiller they could give them, they'd had every surgery they could give them, 
And the doctor said, we're really sorry, we're done. We can't give you anything else. You, you, the rest you've got to live with. The rest you've got to manage yourself. And whether that was them being you know, diagnosed with a terminal illness, whether it was living with chronic pain. whether And he took these people and he thought, is there anything we can do? Can we work with their mind in a way that, you know, we knew, we knew the mind-body connection even back then. Um, but the science wasn't as strong back then. But he, he was pioneering in the sense that he thought, could we, could we help these people with their minds to a point that it's really going to help the suffering they have? And it's not to rubbish their suffering, of course. It's not to pretend it doesn't exist. It's not to pretend that somebody isn't dying of AIDS or hasn't, got, hasn't had four surgeries on their back and is in constant pain day and night. What's, what this is saying is, are there, are there ways that the mind is hurting us in these situations rather than helping us? And if it is, can we remove these extra layers of suffering on top? And if that sounds cryptic, let me give you a real life example from my life. So I have a bad back. I have, I have degenerated discs in my back. <clears throat> so I've seen specialists, I've had MRI scans, and I've been to specialists, right? And, and I, remember, I remember coming out of the office of um, this lady I've been referred to and so I've gone for my MRI. We looked at the results of the consultant. He said, "He says, Steve, you don't have a, you don't have a great back. You know, there's some degeneration in your discs. This is going to be a case of you managing it, right? I don't think you're going to need surgery. You're not going to need surgery now. You may need it in the future, but not yet. It's going to be a lot around how you manage it, how good your posture is, how you manage everything else. And I went to see, he referred me on to, to see this lady. And I remember seeing her. But I just had this. I just had this appointment with the consultant, right? and I came out. I saw her. I came out. And I remember sitting in my car, almost crying, thinking, "I'm in my thirties. I love sport. I love playing basketball. I love running. I love." And I'm screwed because I've got a bad back. It's only going to get worse. If I have surgery, it's a difficult surgery. They told me it's a difficult surgery. Say I end up in a wheelchair. If I'm in a wheelchair, man, that's going to restrict everything. And I, I you know, I, I live for exercise. And suddenly, I talked my way. You know, I almost had this realization. I'm sitting in a car. The, the, rea the reality of that situation, John, is I'm sitting in a car outside a doctor's office, and the pain in my back is probably three out of ten. That's the reality of the situation. But what I was overlaying it, just through my thoughts and through believing those thoughts, was all this stuff around. You're, it's only going to get worse from here. You're too young to have a back problem. If you have surgery, it's going to go wrong. You could end up in a wheelchair. You have ended up in a wheelchair. And I'm thinking these thoughts, believing them, and it's just dragging me down, and I'm, I'm feeling worse and worse. And at a certain point, I remember sitting at the doctor's office thinking, well, we'll just take a second here. Right now, it's two out of 10. Right now, I feel okay. Right now, this is as it is. And, and that, that's what I mean by, if you look, there's some brilliant people who do some great work with people with chronic pain. If you can take away, they call, they call them second, third, and fourth arrows. The first arrow is pain, is suffering. You can't do anything about that. If you have a bad back and you're in pain, you can't do anything about that. What you can do something about is the extra layers of suffering your mind adds on to that. This shouldn't be happening to me. I'm too young. Let's say I need to have surgery and it goes wrong. I could end up in pain for the rest of my life. Da, 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 da. And that misery that you compound on top you can if you if you're aware of it you can do something about that and that's that can be life-changing for people that are living with conditions that are serious and long-term you're absolutely right as i'm thinking through some of the back pains that i've had over the years it's 
the effect that my mind would play on me was very demoralizing and challenging. Yes, there was there was a lot of pain that I was dealing with, but then it's you get into this situation where you just start circling a drain and feeling sorry for yourself and upset and then mad at yourself. Why you know why me? All of this stuff and yeah, I mindfulness didn't even come up as an option for me i'm thinking okay well i've just got to take some sort of painkiller and i've never had any sort of prescription painkillers but taking something ibuprofen living off of it laying on heating pads and ice packs and (laughs) mindfulness never even crossed my mind yeah well it wouldn't really i mean this is this is the problem right we're not we don't teach this stuff in schools we don't teach this stuff in enough places i mean i can remember being at school and someone's teachers screaming at the kids pay attention pay attention because we're distracted but they don't show you how nobody shows you how to pay attention this is a skill paying attention is a skill the world set up us i mean this was like 30 years ago so it's even worse now we've had the digital revolution the smartphones and 24-hour culture and everything else right our our stone age brain is bombarded like it's never been bombarded before and we need to have ways of countering that we need to have ways of stilling it because if we don't learn how to pay attention again if we don't unlearn the habit of incessant thinking that you already said you have we don't unlearn this stuff then then we're you know we, we are used by our minds we're not using our minds we're used by our minds and that's a that's a tough place to be that's where i was i was used by my mind i wasn't using my mind it wasn't this incredible tool that i could pick up and use to solve problems and put down at night when I didn't need it, when it wasn't going to serve me, when the best thing for me was to sleep, I had no way of putting it down. Why? Because it was the master. It wasn't me. It was It was like, if Steve, if I want to wake you up at 2am and would think till 5am, I'm going to do that. And I had no way of shutting it off. Fighting it won't shut it off. I tried that. I'm I'm chuckling because I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning, couldn't go back to sleep. And sometimes it is waking up at 2 a.m., not being able to go back to sleep until 5, and then you're up a half an hour later anyways. But whenever you started this mindfulness journey and started to learn more about it and practice it for yourself, how long did it take for you to start seeing meaningful results and changes within your life? Is this something that the first day or did it take a couple of months of habit and consistency for you to really start seeing the benefit of it? Yeah, it's a really good question. And for me personally, I'll tell you what I think what happened to me personally and I'll tell you what I advise people based on that. So me personally, I started off with an app called Headspace and I downloaded it and I practiced 10 minutes a day for 10 days. I think there was a free trial and I did it 10 minutes for 10 days. And the end of that story, Sean, isn't that, you know, as soon as I started practicing this thing called meditation where I sit for 10 minutes and I put my headphones on and I listen to the guided man or woman who talks me through what to do, pay attention to your breath or your body or whatever you're doing. The end of that story isn't that I suddenly became Mr. Happy permanently. The end of that story isn't that I cartwheel out of bread every morning and you know skip down the road and everything's unicorns and rainbows for me. But, and here's the but, there were tiny things I noticed. And I'll give you some really stupid examples. I stopped biting my nails. I was a terrible nail biter. I've never smoked and I always used to use that as my excuse. Well, I don't smoke so I'm, I'm biting my nails. That's kind of, that's an anxiety thing, right? If I'm, if I'm on edge, 
I used to chew, literally chew my nails. I just noticed at a certain point, wow, I've stopped doing that. I must be, I must be a little bit less anxious as a conclusion, right? Another big one for me, which is funny looking back, I used to drive into IBM's building every day, five days a week. And there's pretty nice grounds in Portsmouth. It's, it's like a big reclaimed, reclaimed from the sea years ago land. There's like a lake around it. There's fish, there's wild animals. It's kind of protected bit. And honestly, I'm, I drove in there every day for 20 years and didn't notice a thing. And then, and then one day, after I practiced, started practicing mindfulness, I drove in one day and I remember getting out of my car, walking to the building, which is a five minute walk at most. And I remember as I was walking along thinking, where did those birds come from? I could hear birds just singing. Really love beautiful sound in the distance. This bird, I thought, wow, where did these come from? These have never been here before. And then I crossed over the bridge and I looked into the water and there's these beautiful fish just kind of coming up to the surface and swimming around. I thought, who put these fish in here? The answer to both those questions is nobody and they've been here all the time. They've been here for the last 20 years. I was just so absorbed in my thinking that everything comes back to thinking, right? Which is why I said to you, the most beautiful moments in your life are when you not think. If we're caught in this incessant stream of thinking, it's like we're living our, our lives above our neck. All of our attention is consumed by thought. So every day for years, when I drove into work, I'd get out of my car, I'd be in work mode. I'd already be at the top of the flight of the stairs mentally before I'd even put my foot on the bottom one. I was already across the bridge before I'd set on there. And, and when you shrink, your attention so that it's just focusing on every thought that's going to run through your mind you miss everything else in your world in your life you miss the birds singing you miss the, the fish swimming and people may say well so what you missed that for a five minute walk yeah but if you if that's a metaphor for your entire life then guess what you're missing your entire life and guess what you're going to be that person in your people's home who turns to the nurse and says i don't know what happened to that. i blinked and i missed it I blinked and I missed it and somehow I didn't show up for it and somehow I don't really and, and as I got older it seemed to get quicker and you know all these all these phrases that everybody repeats I'm just coming up to year end now isn't it it's November we're recording this guaranteed everybody next month's gonna be saying where the hell did 2022 go is it really almost three years since the start of the pandemic we you know and we almost joke about this stuff and it's fine to joke about it and it's fine to miss bits of your life but if you're missing vast chunks of it it's kind of nice to pull the balance back in again. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I tried that Headspace app a couple of months ago. Yeah. And I actually really liked it. I don't know why I didn't sign up for a membership with it, but I did like it. What did you like about it, Sean? The way I felt in that moment... I used it quite a bit for the sleep meditation right. piece. Yeah. And I did sleep better. Right. And as I'm talking through this with you now, I think it really just kind of came down to, well, I don't want to pay the 10 bucks a month and I have my habits and routine in life and yeah. I didn't spend enough time focusing on changing my current life routine and habits into something that was more based around mindfulness that would ultimately be better for me. But now I'm starting to think, okay, I might need to go ahead and start focusing on that a bit more, maybe download that app 
or have some more conversations with you. I think I'll definitely be doing that after the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this comes in. I never really. I just realized I didn't really answer your last question fully, did I? Because I said I'd tell you what what happened for me, and then what I advise other people in terms of how long do you need to practice for. So the biggest the biggest thing for me when it comes to mindfulness is that it isn't separate from the rest of your life. So mo what most people think is, I'll sign up to Headspace, I'll get Calm, I'll get whatever app. You know, there's a million apps out there, right? I'll buy this app or I'll read this book and I'll sit in the morning and I'll do my 10 minutes and then I'm done. And it's like the gym workout. You don't, maybe you want to do it, maybe you don't, maybe you want to go for a run, maybe you don't. You just think, well, let's just get through it. I've committed to this. You go and do your reps in the gym, right? And you think, okay, thank God that's done. Let me get on with the rest of my day now. Those people that, that bring that attitude into, into mindfulness won't make half as much progress as people that bring this this attitude in which is doing some level of formal practice which is what i call meditation is an incredible thing that's where you're learning the skill in, in a controlled environment that's where you're kind of learning this ability to pay attention you're seeing how crazy your mind is you're seeing how it wanders all over the place you're seeing how very rarely it's still <coughs> but here's the thing you need to add in you want to be sprinkling your day with the same qualities that you had in that meditation and you transpose that into the rest of your life. What does that mean? What I mean is there's nothing you do in a formal meditation that you can't do in the rest of your life. There's nothing that you do in it when you do a sitting practice, for example. There's nothing you do in that that you can't then do when you're in the shower, that you can't then do when you're eating your food, that you can't do when you're sitting at a red light in traffic. And these are things I'm gonna give people before they go, because I want people to take away three things from today. One is at the most beautiful moments in your life and when your mind is still. But here's number two, right? We've missed a step almost. Here's number two, let's get this one in here. This is almost the kicker, right? Because you can make the assumption, okay, well, I agree with Steve, I agree with Sean. The most, when I think about it, you're right. When I think about it, the most beautiful moments in my life when my mind is still. I accept it, fine. So I'll just have more moments like that. I'll just still my mind more. I'll just, I, I can probably do that. Surely I, surely I can still my mind because I think I can control the thoughts in my head, can I? I don't know, maybe I could quite. So let's practice it right now. I'm inviting everybody listening and you. We'll just take 20 seconds. I'll tell you when in a second. And just to just for 20 seconds, I want you to think no thoughts, Sean and everybody else. I don't want you to have a single thought run through your mind. I don't want you to have a thought of what am I going to have for lunch, what I did yesterday, what you think about this podcast, what I'm wearing, what you're... I don't want you to even have the thought, I'm not even here, I'm not thinking. This is perfect. I'm not even thinking, because guess what you're thinking? Right, so not a single thought, just for 20 seconds, go. Okay, that was 20 seconds. So Sean, I saw you close your eyes. How did you go on? I went. <laughs> I went to just a dark space. 
And wow. the darkest space that I can ever recall was I went into a a cavern in San Antonio years and years ago on like yeah. a tour. We were the last tour of the evening, yeah. and because we were the last tour, the guide actually turned all the lights out in the cavern, and it was the blackest black I'd ever seen in my life. I put my hand in front of my face, and I, I couldn't even wow. see my hand in, wow. in front of my face. I just went to the darkest, calmest, quietest place I'd ever been. Okay. And I don't know if that was the right approach or not, but I was thinking, okay, what where could I place myself where there were no thoughts? And I thought, yeah. okay, pitch black. Okay. And there was a, a calmness. I focused on my breathing. I was slowing down my breathing, taking just do slow, deep, and controlled breaths. But I felt better. Nice. So you got a little experience in this, and that was a fairly skillful way to do that. So when you say actually no experience, never never done it before, I just thought, okay, well, let me just try a black place. <laughs> okay. So instinctively, you thought to to kind of go there. Um. And for most people, so so the one way of hacking that, if you'd have literally held your breath and gritted your teeth, it would probably have stopped your mind. But that's a terrible way of stopping your mind, right? Can you imagine? Imagine a mindfulness teacher saying, "When you want to, when you want to still your mind, just hold your breath, like just you know, just sit and go." So that's that's not unfortunately that's not a good way of doing it. But most people, and if you sit for any length of time, even if even if people could could sit for 10, 20 seconds, um, and have a mind that's relatively still, your mind will kick in fairly soon, right? But. Let's try something radically diff different now. So we're not gonna try and still our minds now. We're not gonna try and fix them in one place. We're not gonna try and feel peaceful. We're not gonna go to any happy place. We're not gonna recall a memory where everything was dark and I felt very chilled and relaxed. And, and We're not gonna think about being on holiday on the beach. I'm gonna forget all, all the memories, okay? I'm not gonna try and reconstruct peace or find it or force it or slow my mind down or fight it. So there's a real letting go here of effort. No effort in this, okay? All I want you to do now is just become more alert than you were because this requires intense focus. So become very focused. And I just want you to catch the next in-breath as it comes in. And I want you to follow it all the way down on its journey. So catch it as it comes in in the nostrils. Notice the sensations. Fairly cool for me as I breathe in. And then if I track it with my attention, it goes past the throat, goes past the chest. I feel my chest expand slightly. It goes all the way down. My belly expands as I breathe in. Feel it on my shirt. Belly contracts as I breathe out. And then the breath comes back up through the chest. The throat is kind of warmer as I breathe out. So just, just imagine you could stay with your breath, fully with your attention. We'll just do one or two more, but really be with these, just these last two. So really follow it. Catch it as you breathe in, follow all the way down. And up and out. One more. Now here's the real hack, Sean. I told you the, I told you the bad one before. Here's the real one. The greatest mindfulness teacher in the world, in my opinion, is a guy called Eckhart Tolle. Some of your listeners maybe heard of him. He wrote a book called The Power of Now. He's written another book called uh, A New Earth, another book called Stillness Speaks, a phenomenal teacher, in my opinion. He says this, 
It's not possible for a human being to place all of their attention on the sensation of breath entering and leaving their body and think at the same time. It's not possible. So was that true in your experience just now? I asked you to place all your attention as you breathe in, as you breathe out. Were you thinking while you did that? And if you were thinking, you lost focus on the breath, right? See the yeah, one I was focusing way. on, try, well, trying to think through and focus on where it was at as it was going down through my throat, lungs, belly, yeah. and then back out right. and out. And you're absolutely right. I wasn't thinking about anything else. Right, because you can't. Because you can't. So this is the biggest hack. This is this is why the breath is a f fundamental anchor for people when they practice meditation. Because the breath, aligning your attention with the breath, will immediately bring you into the present moment. You can't take a breath for five seconds ago. You can't take a breath for five seconds time. Neither of those things have happened yet. So if you're with your breath, you're present. And if you're fully with your breath, with your attention, you're not thinking. We know that when you're not thinking, good things happen. We know that the most beautiful moments in your life are when you're not thinking. So here, here we're starting to bring it all together now. So here's where, so the most beautiful moments in my life are when I'm not thinking. I can't not think apart from holding my breath. That's not a great plan. But I can start to not think if instead of fighting my mind and resisting it and blocking it and trying to fix it in one place and trying to feel peaceful, I let go of all that and simply withdraw attention from thinking and place it deliberately on my breath and i need to be alert to do that i need to have focus to do that this isn't zoning out chilling out kicking back falling below thought we're actually rising above thought and and when you do this you will still your mind so let me let me jump maybe do you want me to jump in and give people a couple of a couple of practical things they can do let's do it so and then th there's many tips I could give, right? But let's let's keep it simple and, and aligned to what I just said. So we, what I just described would, would be called a conscious breath. Most most of us, we're not responsible for breathing. I mean, if I say I am breathing, it's a misnomer. It's 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 a it's false. I am not breathing, right? Because I'm not in control of remembering to breathe. If I, if it was up to me to remember to breathe, I'd have died a long time ago. You know, I'm breathing in my sleep. I was breathing like all last night. I was breathing since the moment we were born. Um, so I'm breathing is is false statement. But what we what we just took there is a conscious breath, and that means that we're aware of the fact that there's breath coming in and out of the body, and there's there's this automatic thing, right? So we don't need to control it. If the breathing's deep, great. If it's shallow, great. For the purposes of this exercise, we don't need to control it. But what we just took through there was a conscious breath. Conscious means you're aware of it. You can do it while I'm talking now. You don't have to, you can do it anytime, right? So my invitation to anybody listening is, the next time you get stuck at a red light in traffic, whether you're driving, whether you're a passenger, whether you're on a bus, whether you're on a bike, if you're walking, if you've got to stop, press the button across the road, anything, right? Any, any moment where you stop, let's say you press the button for the elevator, you've got to wait for it to come down. Let's say you're in a store and you're in line in the store and you've not been served yet, you've got to wait. <coughs> These are all opportunities for us to still our mind temporarily for one second, for two seconds. How? Direct all of your attention to your breath like you did when we did it a couple minutes ago. So I press the elevator. 10 more flights before it's coming to me. Okay. 
What do I do? Do I grab my phone and check social media for the hundredth time today? Just this once, I fly in my breath for two breaths. Lift still coming down, one more breath. Okay, I get in. I get stuck in a red traffic light. The red traffic light stops my car. Can it also stop my mind? Yeah, it can, if you want it to. Conscious breath. Now, the cynics out there, and I always address the cynics, Sean, being one myself. The cynics out there are shouting at their mobile phones or over there listening to this saying, that's nothing. That's nothing. Two seconds in a day, two, three seconds, five times a day. That's not going to change anything. That's not going to help me sleep. You're telling me that's going to help me get back to sleep? This guy's crazy. The power of mindfulness is an accumulative effect. And here's, here's two really easy ways of understanding that. If I go and buy a McDonald's now or any fast food now, I'm not going to see a negative effect on my body after one meal, right? My doctor's not going to ring me up and say, we've seen your blood results, you've got your cholesterol's up, your blood pressure's up, your en enzyme levels in your liver. <coughs> However, as the guy from Super Size Me showed, if I ate McDonald's every day for 30 days, however long he did it, absolutely I start to see this in my body. If I smoke a cigarette today, one cigarette does nothing. If I smoke every day for a certain period of time, physiologically I start changing. So the same has to be for positive habits, right? I practice mindfulness today, yeah, nothing happens. I don't sleep like a baby because I sat for five minutes and watched my breath. But guess what? If I start to invite this into my life on a more regular basis, if I practice this kind of formally and informally, for a period of one or two months, maybe I do. And so to circle all the way back to your question earlier, how long do people need to practice? If you if you held a gun to a scientist's head and asked him that, he would probably say, I would recommend 10 minutes a day, five days a week, six or seven days a week if you can do it. But let's say 10 minutes, five days a week for eight weeks. That's probably the tipping point at which if they were hooking you up to a heart rate variability monitor, if they were hooking you up to a functional MRI scanner, any of the others, any of this physiological stuff we can measure, right? Not just saying how you're feeling, but your body showing us how you're feeling. Um, that would probably be looking at about, about two months and about 10 minutes a day, give or take five days a week. And when you look at that for your average person, that's 1% or less than 1% of your day. It's not a massive investment. Not a massive investment, but a significant investment in your health and well-being. Huge, huge. And you look how mainstream this is. You know, LeBron James is doing stuff with calm. There's a guy, Raheem Sterling, the people of soccer fans. Um, you know, the England forward, he's done stuff with Headspace. Now, this, this is more and more mainstream as the years go by. It's more, it's pervading more and more aspects of our culture. It's performing high, pervading high performance sport. You know, academic world, the clinical world, the workplace now is creeping in because this is this is the real deal. This is this is not BS. And you know, I always say to people, I should have said it right at the start of this podcast. <coughs> I always say to people, don't believe a word I tell you. Please don't. People, if anybody that comes on my course, day one, don't believe a word I tell you. Why? Not because I'm a liar, but because believing in this stuff does nothing. I can sit on my couch eating junk food, believing in fitness. I can believe going to the gym is a great thing while I sit there playing computer games. Believing does nothing, right? I mean, it's, it's you're not gonna, 
radically change your life just by saying to people, oh, I, th- I think mindfulness is amazing. I believe, I absolutely believe it's a great thing. Okay, great. But you've got to shift from believing in it to experiencing it. So I really encourage people, don't get wrapped up in the science. Don't believe what it tells you. Don't believe what the greatest books say. Don't believe all the experiments they do in the app. So the only thing that matters, if anybody's listening and they're unsure as to whether or not they want to start, the only thing that matters is what mindfulness means to you. Is there any one way you're going to find that out? I love it. Steve, this has been an incredible conversation. I enjoyed the first time we chatted, but this has been so enlightening. And just going through this experience and doing those those short little exercises that we did right here on the podcast, I feel better. I feel, and now I'm ex- excited about the thought of trying this more in my life. So I'm going to make a commitment to you that I'm going to start doing this and I'm going to follow back up with you in eight weeks and report out wow. on how it's going. Excellent. Now, I also want to pose that same challenge to all of the listeners and viewers. Check out Headspace. Contact Steve directly. Steve, I'm probably going to be reaching out to you after we finish recording to talk through this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But give this a try. For all of you that are watching or listening, give it a try. Yeah. I promise you it will be worthwhile. And if after eight weeks you think it was a waste of time, you know what? You at least learned what doesn't work for you. I don't think that'll be the case, but it will be a learning experience in life. And that's one of the things that that I try to talk about a lot is trying new things, figuring out what works for you in your life. Absolutely. And let me squeeze in some top tips before we close, right? These are going to be three or four things I wish I'd known before I did my first meditation course all the way years ago. Number one, if you're going to do this, you've got to be kind to yourself. So you, Sean, I'm talking directly to you, but I'm talking to everybody. The kinder you are when you're practicing this stuff, the more progress you're going to make. And that may seem counterintuitive, but don't set short-term goals. This is very different to what you've done elsewhere. It's very different to other self-development. We don't set milestones and try and make sure we keep to them. You, this path is a it's different for everybody, right? So be kind to yourself. Number two, don't expect anything too soon. Just go into this thinking, I'm just going to practice and see what happens. And I will judge it when I look back after the eight weeks. I'm not going to judge it after day three or day four even if good things start to happen, right? So a bit of patience. Don't compare yourself with anybody else. This more applies if you're actually on a course with me and other people, but don't compare yourself with anybody else. You've had a vastly different life, different experiences, those different social interactions, everything's been different about your life. So to compare yourself with anybody else directly would be crazy. You might be comparing your beginning to their middle or your middle to their end. And don't compare with where you think you should be, right? So don't think, Ah, mindfulness is meant to be this amazing thing, and science backs it up, and da 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 da. da. I'm going to do it for a week, and if I'm not sleeping like a baby, either I'm doing it wrong, or there's nothing to it, or I just can't do it. Just go into it and just do it. Just practice with no expectation, and see what happens. And you you may start to see the tiniest of things creeping in, and when you do, honor those because your entire life is made up of small moments. If it's anything like mine. And the small moments are the ones we take for granted. The small moments are the ones we miss the most. 
And you may just notice silly little things. Maybe you're more present for your kids when they say, Daddy, watch me do this. Maybe you're more present for your pet dog when she wags her tail and you see her in the morning. Maybe you're present, more present with your wife when you're having dinner, your friends at the bar. Maybe you just feel a little bit more still more quickly when you're out in nature. Maybe you hear the birds singing when you drive into the office. Maybe you notice the fish swimming. Maybe you take a conscious breath in traffic. Your blood pressure comes down a tiny bit. Your life's made up of all these tiny moments. Your life isn't made up of big parties in Vegas and promotions. And So if we can tackle the small moments, we're tackling our entire life. And they, you know, add that in with the compound effect that we talked about earlier, the cumulative effect. It's where the, it's where the, the magic is. So if people are trying this, I wish them well. Start small. Don't expect big things. Find yourself a good book or an app or a teacher. They will help you because they're really put sort of spot point the blind points and happy around them and um good luck with it and just be patient and kind you'll need it you, you aren't the only one with a crazy mind that's the last thing to know right thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this knowledge i have no doubt that it's been hugely beneficial for all the listeners all the viewers of the channel i, I just i can't thank you enough for all of you listening and watching we'll make sure to have steve's contact info in all of the show notes he's got a website we'll have his linkedin profile all sorts of ways to contact him and work with him highly highly encourage you do so also, the show will never have any sort of ads. The show is free. The intent of this show is to help help people out, help them become the best versions of themselves. I would ask, if you found value, please rate the show, whether it's on podcast for Apple or Spotify, give a thumbs up on YouTube, and share it with friends and family. We just want to try and help people out. Thank you all so much, and y'all have a good one.